There are actually studies that show that if you combine vitamin C and vitamin E, their antioxidant power basically is synergistically increased. For some reason, you, you put them separately, they do what they do separately. You put them together and it's much better than them separate. I've been fighting with one arm tied behind my back. But what happens when I'm finally set free? What we do in life echoes in eternity. It's supposed to be hard. If it wasn't hard, everyone would do it. The hard is what makes it great. Only love can truly save the world. This is my mission now, forever. Welcome to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I'm your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This week, I had the pleasure of sitting down with my friend, Dr. Tony Yoon. He is a board-certified plastic surgeon. He's considered one of the nation's best-known experts in looking younger, with or without surgery. His motto is, true beauty is holistic, and he believes that all people can achieve their true beauty using a combination of holistic factors, which do not necessarily involve surgery, and what a breath of fresh air that is. He has been on pretty much every show in the country. Uh, he has shared his tips for holistic plastic surgery on shows like The Rachel Ray Show, The Doctors, The Dr. Oz Show, Fox and Friends, etc. And today when we sat down to speak, we talked about his most recent book, Playing God, The Evolution of a Modern Surgeon. This is his memoir around what it takes to become a premier holistic surgeon in today's what can often be today's wild west of, of medicine. And it's really a must read for anybody who is interested around anything to do with plastic surgery, whether that's minimally invasive techniques like Botox and fillers, or for more invasive techniques like breast augmentation, tummy tucks, uh, etc. And we had a really great conversation. I have known uh, Tony for many years. And one of the things that I have most admired about him is his, he's very steadfast, very much concerned with his uh, science and having an evidence-based approach to care. So we talked about how to choose a plastic surgeon. What are some of the questions that you should be asking? What does it even mean to be a board certified plastic surgeon? And why is that important? We talked about skin aging, some of the intrinsic and extrinsic factors that contribute to the skin appearing aged. And we talked about things like fat loss and bone loss in the face. And we talked about uh, his favorite skincare routine, like the minimum viable product that everybody should be doing. So we talked about sunscreen, we talked about retinol, we talked about vitamin C, vitamin E. And then we moved into the question, we talked about Botox, we talked about how it can be used, and really the importance of understanding anatomy. And this is really where I uh, get fanatical because if you do not have an exquisite understanding of anatomy, you know, these Botox parties that you hear about all the time, these are, in my, in my opinion, just a train wreck uh, waiting to happen. So we talked about, you know, of course, we had to talk about a little bit of innervation of the face, bilateral innervation of the upper half of the face, talking about a little bit of upper motor neuron tracts, and then the lower half of the face and how those are uh, contralaterally innervated and why not moving the upper half of the face is considered okay. But if you have one side of your face that's not moving in the lower half, like your cheek or your mouth or something, that can be a little bit odd. And then we talked about breast augmentation. So there is a, uh, and at the time of this recording, the FDA has now released a 
statement around putting box label warnings on the breast prosthetics, very similar to the way that we have cigarette box warnings now as well. So we dissected the different types of implants. So we talked about smooth uh, versus textured. We talked about round versus uh, teardrop or gummy bear shape. And we talked about silicon versus saline and the differences in terms of their appearance and the different uh, risks of complications between all of them. So whether you have been considering breast implants or you have them, this is a must listen. We talked about anaplastic large cell lymphoma as a, as a consequence of having textured implants and we get into the science there as well. There was so many questions that I did not get to ask Dr. Yoon, uh, and this is just going to lay the foundation for a follow-up with him. I had, at the end of our discussion, I had about, I don't know, maybe 15 to 20 more questions, so I am definitely going to be bringing him back on, but this was a great primer in terms of best skincare practices, in terms of product, in terms of uh, minimally invasive uh, techniques, and then we talked a lot about breast augmentation. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Anthony Yoon. Today, I have a very good friend of mine. I'm very excited. I have Dr. Anthony Yoon here on the podcast. Welcome, Doc. Thanks so much for having me, Stephanie. So I am really excited to have you on today. We are going to be talking about your new book, Playing God, and you and some of the experiences that you describe in that book in terms of your journey to becoming you know, a better doctor, a better surgeon. And I often say that there's really no difference between our personal development and our professional development. So you do a really beautiful job in that book in terms of you know, some of the struggles that you've had. So I want to dive into some of those stories. And the other thing I want to talk about, I had polled my community before getting, uh, getting on the phone with you. And the biggest thing was, I want to know about skincare. I want to know what he thinks about Botox and fillers and breast dog and all this kind of stuff. So we're going to dive into some of your totally cool. specialties as well, because I know that these are some of the areas that you play into. Sounds great. Let's get started. I'm good. All right. So let's first start off with building some street cred. So you are a board certified plastic surgeon. So can you explain just for anybody that has never, that doesn't really understand the difference, why is this piece so important? Yeah, it's important because in today's wild west of medicine, anybody can perform whatever cosmetic procedure they want to, as long as they're a licensed physician, that's, it's not illegal. And so there are doctors all around the country performing surgeries on patients, even if they're not actually surgeons, even if they have absolutely no training in actual surgery, whether it's plastic surgery or any type of surgery, if you as a physician open up an operating room in your office, you can perform whatever procedure you want as long as a patient signs on the dotted line. Mm -hmm. So for me as a board certified plastic surgeon, I could perform a hysterectomy, even though I have absolutely no expertise in it, and it would be legal for me to do that. And so, you know, why it's important, you know, that I am a board certified plastic surgeon that's performing these types of things is because I have gone through four years of medical school. You know, I've gone through three years of general surgery residency training, two years of plastic surgery residency, did a one-year fellowship in aesthetic plastic surgery in Beverly Hills, and then I passed comprehensive written and oral exams. And every year, I'm uh, also doing maintenance of certification, uh, part of the two major national societies. So these are a lot of hoops that you have to jump through. And not anybody can do that because it's very, very difficult to get in. Uh, when I applied to be a plastic surgeon to get the residency, 
it was literally of the, and these are all the top students. It's like one in four chance of getting in. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so there are people who take shortcuts and they do other types of uh, residency programs. They're much shorter. And then they put their shingle up and say, Hey, I'm a cosmetic surgeon. They take a weekend course and they think that they're equivalent to somebody like myself. Right. And this is, uh, I really want to highlight this because not all surgeons or people who perform surgery are created equal. And I think a lot of as a consumer, at least, you know, when I've had discussions with girlfriends and friends uh, at large, uh, the big determinant is price. People will look and they will shop around based on price, not necessarily, you know, expertise as you're describing, the hoops and the national organizations that you have to be a part of and the recertifications and to make sure that you are at least maintaining a minimum standard of, uh, of competency. So I wanted to start off with that. And I also wanted to understand you know, in the book, you talked about your parents quite a bit. And I loved your dad was, you know, for the most part was this almost this comedic figure in the book who was like, you know, what you are, is it's not an OBGYN, but you know, you're, you're going to be, you know, you're going to do well. So when did you, when did you know that you wanted to become a plastic surgeon? Was it, did you know that when you were going through your medical school training? Was it as an intern? When did you know? And how did you decide that? So I'm going to send you a copy of my first book in stitches because it goes through all of that. Okay. Um, but basically, you know, I, when I, the day I was born, my parents decided I was going to be a doctor because my, my dad grew up basically on a small rice farm in rural Korea. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was the oldest of seven children and was basically the one who brought his whole family out, out of poverty by becoming a physician. He was an OBGYN. Right. And so he became a physician, he lived the American dream and basically pulled his whole family out of poverty. And so what he knew was that doctor equals success equals food on the table, stable job. And so that's what he decided I was going to be. Well, on top of that, he also knew that the highest paying and most prestigious physicians are transplant surgeons, vascular surgeons, thoracic surgeons, and and these types of high powered surgeons. And I'm just not that type of guy. Like I'm not that type of, of doctor of person. And, and it was actually a story from my first book in Stitches that it tells the story of this little kid who, you know, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. And I was thinking about plastic surgery, but I didn't know a lot about it. And one of the, one of the seminal moments was this little baby who was brought into our, to the hospital when I was on my pediatrics rotation, uh, who had her face eaten off by a raccoon. Uh, it was an absolutely horrifying situation of these parents who left their baby in a barn with their pet raccoon and went to the bar. Oh my God. And when they came home, the baby, the raccoon was in the bassinet eating the baby's face. So the baby brought, was brought to the hospital. And, uh, and when this plastic surgeon showed some of the things that they were planning to try to do to help reconstruct the face, this was something that was totally new to me because this was before the days of botched of Dr. 90210 and all these TV shows on plastic surgery. Mm-hmm. And since then I was hooked and I ended up, you know, going into that field. Amazing. And in your book, in your recent book, Playing God, you talk about your own personal journey and you weave this so beautifully in terms of what it means to become a doctor. And then I think as a sec, what it means to become an advocate for your patients. I think that any, and I was so tethered to your, like the entire book, I was like, oh, I get what he's talking about. Because I think when anytime you, pref- you know, you complete any professional degree, I think, you know, yes, it's hard. Yes, it's tough. And you, you outline, you know, your internship, your residency, you know, how many hours of sleep you were getting and how, t- and how you really pushed the physical limits. But that's really just a ticket to get in the race, like to get your degree, you know, to finish your medical degree. That's just, you know, you're just now you're able to get into the race and start at the starting line. So 
I think you did this so beautifully. And there was Thank one you. story, one story, in, uh, there's actually multiple, but there's actually two stories I'd love to highlight now. In the chapter, Finding My Voice, there was Martin, the burn victim. So you were working in the burn unit and uh, maybe walk us through that story, that experience, and why it was so meaningful for you for your professional development and being an advocate um, for your patients. Yeah. So one of the things that um, in that in my book, Playing God, that I think is important is the difference between this old-fashioned surgeon, doctor, and the new holistic, more modern surgeons and modern physicians of today, people like you and me. Mm -hmm. um, and so this was early in my career. It was actually the first time as a resident. So I'm a new physician, new doctor who's in my training. Um, and I'm working in the burn unit where we're treating burn patients. And it was the first time I actually had any autonomy, really, where I was taking care of people on my own. And we had this young man come in <clears throat> who was in a massive fire. Um, it was an explosion, actually. And he had burned over 90% of his whole body. And he was brought in. Um, we were treating him. And as I was treating him, the attending surgeon, who's the one who's in charge, comes in and basically takes over. Well, we know that when you've got massive burns on your chest, especially as severe as his uh, were, that eventually he's not going to be able to breathe very well uh, from the inhalation injury, plus from the fact that when you're so burned around your chest, you have a hard time actually expanding your chest because the burns get hard and they mm -hmm. thicken. Mm -hmm. um, and so we had to intubate him. We had to sedate him and put him on a respirator, a uh, ventilator. And I knew that, that looking at the statistics, there's, there's a good chance this young man, this poor young man is not going to survive. He's never going to wake up from this. And he was awake before we put him on the respirator. Mm -hmm. So I knew that his mother or his wife and his young daughter were in the waiting room. And the surgeon comes in and said, let's put him on the ventilator now, you know, sedate him, let's put him on. And I stopped and I said, look, I think that we should be, you know, I think we should bring his wife and daughter in to say goodbye to him. Because I don't, you know, he's not going to wake up from this, the chances are. Yeah, 90% and the surgeon, burned. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and he thought about it for just a few seconds. And he said, no, we need to preserve hope for them. Let's put them under. And as the dutiful resident, I stepped back and I let it happen. Mm -hmm. And so they sedated him. They put him on the ventilator. And then after he was all basically taken care of, they brought the family in. And I stood there and watched the daughter and the mother say, you know, and, and the wife, you know, crying and everything. And, and then my shift ended pretty shortly after that. And when I came back the next day, uh, he had died. He died overnight. He was gone by then. Mm -hmm. And so it was something that I still remember to this day. You know, there's a handful of patients throughout any doctor's career that you remember. Sometimes these are patients that you're, they're such great successes that you take a lot of pride in it mm -hmm. and that you feel so good that, you know, I made a difference in this person's life or I saved mm -hmm. this person's life. But even more important are those patients that you failed. Right. And this is a patient that I failed. Like mm -hmm. I really should have put my foot down and said, no, you know, you know, you really, you know, it, it wasn't my decision, but I could have been much more forceful. And, and that was a turning point for me because it finally gave me the, it finally gave me the realization that, you know, I'm not this dutiful student that has no authority. Like I'm a, I'm a freaking doctor and yeah, I'm not an attending surgeon. I'm not the top person or at the time I wasn't, um, but I owe it to my patients to do what's best for them. Uh, and so, and, and, and it was something that I still think about today because I failed the young guy and, um, you know, had I, you know, really exerted myself, then maybe this mother and this daughter would have different memories 
and would have and have had maybe more peace that they would have been able to say goodbye to him. And it's that interesting line between doing what's medically right. Like you talk about this in the book, like the medical decision that's medically right versus what's morally right. And this is where, you know, we have the science of medicine, you know, but there's also the art and philosophy around it as well. And I love, you know, there's so many, there's so many examples in the book. You talk about, uh, I think it was Jane was her name with the prosthetic joint uh, with the orthopedic surgeon refusing, like it it could not have been his, you know, uh, maybe you can describe that that story as well. Yeah. I mean, this was, this was one of the times, you know, you, you're used to as somebody in the medical field that we all work together for the betterment of our patients. Um, But what happens, unfortunately, with old fashioned surgeons is that sometimes the ego and the arrogance takes precedence over the patient's benefits Mm -hmm. and, and, and the importance of the patient. Mm-hmm. And and people, unfortunately, doctors don't necessarily always put the patient first. So this is a story, I appreciate you asking about it, where a woman had her knee replaced by an orthopedic surgeon, uh, and then she started draining pus out of her wound. And they kept um, dressing it and waiting for it, putting her antibiotics and this and that. And then they called me in and said, hey, you're the plastic surgeon on call. Can you help to fix this? So I look at it, she's draining pus from her prosthetic and he said, hey, just move a muscle over this and it'll, it'll bring new blood supply to heal this wound. Mm-hmm. So I said, look, I don't think that this is the issue. My concern is that the joint might be infected. But the orthopedic surgeon was one of those old fashioned doctors where he never makes a mistake. It's never his problem. It's, you know, it's the patient's fault or it's somebody else's fault. Mm-hmm. So I end up bringing this patient to surgery and the surgery goes just fine and uh, initially, her feeling was really good. And then what ended up happening is she started draining pus again from it. And so I called him up and I said, hey, um, the muscle looks fine. My surgery looks fine, but she's still draining her. She's still infected. Mm-hmm. And I said, I think that the knee is infected and you've got to look at taking this joint out. Mm-hmm. And he exploded. I was on the phone with him. And I know because the nurses who were around me at the time, I was, in, I was just outside the operating room. They're shocked because I'm not the type of doctor who gets really angry. I don't yell. Like, yeah. And he started blaming it on me. And he said, I'm going to tell her this is all your fault. You're the one that caused this. Even though she had this infection way before I even met her. Right. And I'm going to get another plastic surgeon to look at her. Well, he didn't know, but I actually had another plastic surgeon look at her already. Mm-hmm. And he had told me the same thing. Like, yeah, the knee joint's infected. So basically, he threw me under the bus and he told the patient, this is Dr. Yoon's fault. You know, it was because his surgery had failed. He put it all over her chart. And so it's medical. Now it was in her medical record. There's a record of it. Yeah. yeah, That this is my fault. Mm -hmm. And he brought another surgeon in to see her. So at that point, you know, I said, look, you know, she's his patient. You know, I'm a consultant. So it's not like I can take over her care. You know, it doesn't really work that way in the hospital. And I said, look, I'm really sorry, you know, but I can't take care of you anymore because he's kicking me off of this. And um, I really, I told her, I really think that this is due to your joint. And, uh, and she said, I understand. And then this and that. Well, another surgeon, the plastic surgeon comes in, literally sticks his head inside the door and says, hey, let's just watch this for a while. And she says, okay. And then he walks out. He never even looked at her knee. So she comes back to see me literally, I think like two months later, mm-hmm. I get this huge gift uh, to my office and she comes in and sees me. And she said, you know what? you know, this doctor basically did this He said, Hey, let's just watch it. And she said, my knee drained for a couple of months. And then finally the orthopedic surgeon came in, brought me back to surgery, put a new knee joint in, and now I'm doing fine. And so it took this poor woman 
you know, multiple operations. She had this surgery done by me that probably when I, in retrospect, should never have really needed to be done mm-hmm. because of this jerk's arrogance, because right. he couldn't admit that maybe he had a complication. And so it's kind of that, once again, that old school doctor mentality of I'm the surgeon, I'm in charge, you do what as I say, and I make no wrongs. It's this playing God mentality. And that's why the, the, the uh, title of the book is playing God, because so many doctors think they're playing God. And in the end, what I've come to realize is that it's not that as a doctor, you're playing God. It's, it's that you need God to help you to help your patients. You know, we can't do this alone. And I ended, as you know, I ended the book with the story of, of a time when I thought that all the odds were against me. And I had this patient who was just a hopeless patient. I didn't think there was any chance that you know, on paper that I could help her. And I really think that it was her faith and mine as well with a little divine help from above that helped get her through what was really a devastating, devastating injury for her. This is what I think separates you from many other surgeons, because I think that you have, you know, you've clearly, we've talked about why, what a board certified plastic surgeon means. So you clearly have the ability, but I think you also are an advocate. So you have the skill set, but you're also really concerned about being an advocate for your patient. And to your point, I think that there can be a lot of hubris and I think that there can be a lot of arrogance in not just in plastic surgery and not, I think this runs across uh, many healthcare professionals. I've I've run into this myself personally, uh, professionally as well. Oh yeah. The medical field, the traditional allopathic medical field is not kind towards other types of healthcare providers. You know, we think that we are the masters of all the knowledge you know, I mean, if I, in my doctor's lounge, I bet you if I were to say, hey, you know, and every morning I go to the doctor's, almost three mornings a week when I operate and mm-hmm. it's, I sit there and I listen to the conversations among the doctors there. And it just, I mean, it astounds me. And if I were to say, hey, what do you guys think about chiropractic? Or I have a friend of mine who's a doctor of chiropractic and uh, she's got some really cool ideas of nutrition. Mm-hmm. They would scoff and yes. say, oh, what do they know as they're eating their muffins and drinking their milk and having mm-hmm. their sugar cereal. <laughs> right. I mean, it, right. it's, it baffles me, you know, and one thing I think that I have learned over the last many years, as I've gotten to know doctors like yourself and a lot of our holistic health colleagues, I've learned how much I don't know. And that's a lot. Right. It's funny. There's a, there's a funny saying where it's like, you know, the more evidence, you know, based research we have, it's the more evidence that we know nothing, (laughs) right? Like the more evidence based research, and I use that in air quotes, you know, the more evidence uh, comes about that we don't really know a lot. And there's to be closed off from learning, I think is a tragedy, especially when you're a healthcare provider, no matter what letters come behind your name. And I think more and more the physicians, the MDs and the DOs are realizing that there is a lot that we don't know that we're not trained in, you know, Mm -hmm. about, especially about nutrition and about Mm -hmm. environmental impacts on our body. I mean, we're trained in pharmacology, we're trained in physiology, we're trained in interventions, but we aren't trained in a lot of this other stuff. And, Mm -hmm. you know, unfortunately, there are a lot of physicians out there that believe just because they have an MD after their name, that they're a master of all things health. And that's something that just is not true. And I think that the more that we can, as you know, that that we can as physicians, as MDs and DOs, um, acknowledge that we know our stuff really, really well. You know, if you're going to the ER because you've got a hot appendix or you've been in a car accident, you know, or you've got a tumor that's rapidly growing, then by all means, you got to go and see 
you know, a traditional. Please don't call me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but if you've yeah. got chronic disease and you're on 12 different medications and you're not mm-hmm. taking care of yourself, you know, mm-hmm. we don't have the answers for you. There are other types of healthcare providers who know this stuff most, you know, quite often much better than we do. So if you are a consumer and you're saying, you know what, I'm kind of interested in in plastic surgery, uh, what would be some of the things that you would be counseling someone in terms of how to select a provider? Are there any general guidelines that you have? Are there questions that you might ask that provider? What are some things that you think are important? Yeah, I think the first thing you want to do is choose a provider who you know isn't going to go to surgery first. You know, there is this idiom in, in surgery, to cut is to cure. Or the only way to heal is with cold steel. And there are these cut first doctors that are still out there. Um, The interesting thing now in plastic surgery, air quotes, Mm -hmm. is that it's not always surgery anymore. And there's so much that you can do other than surgery to give yourself the appearance that you may be desiring. Okay. So even in the last just 10 years, we've made some massive, massive advances in things that we would have never thought 10 years ago we would have. So for example, one of the most popular treatments that we have is non-invasive fat reduction. Okay. Mm-hmm. So number one thing, you know, if you've got extra weight, the best thing to do is to diet and exercise, get on the right diet and, and exercise to get that weight off. But sometimes even if you're in great shape and you're healthy and you're feeling great and you look great, you may have inherited certain areas of fat deposition that you don't like. And, mm-hmm. you know, it used to be that the only option was liposuction. Well, that's surgery. But now we've got these non-invasive treatments like cool sculpting and sculpture that really work. Um, we've actually even taken that to the next level nowadays with a treatment called M-Sculpt. M-Sculpt is taking the fat reduction to another level where not only are we reducing fat, but you can actually thicken muscle. So we've got this device. It's completely non-invasive. It uses electro- electromagnetic energy to stimulate muscles to contract 20,000 times during one half-hour session. Wow. And you do four sessions, four half-hour sessions over two weeks. Mm-hmm. And this device has been around for a good year or so, and I has, have held off on it because you know, you're probably thinking like me, okay, you work out and you see, you, know, you get a little pumped up, but if you stop working out, you're not going to see those results a mm-hmm. month or two later. Right. Well, they have come out with six and 12-month results for this device that show that the results seem to last even without changing your exercise pattern. And what are we, what's the change that you're seeing in the muscle? So you're seeing a 15% increase or hypertrophy of the muscle fibers. You're seeing a 19% reduction in the thickness of fat and very important, especially for women who've had children mm-hmm. an 11% reduction in the diastasis, uh, which is not something that we've ever seen before. And these are actually studies and measurements that are done via MRI. So they're very accurate. And that's interesting because typically, as as far as I understand, I mean, of course, there's natural methods to helping with a diastasis, but uh, in the surgical world, it was it would be typically a tummy tuck where yep. you may suture or you may you know tighten the uh, the ligamentous uh, like the the splay or whatever yeah. that you've seen there. Exactly. So this is the first thing that we know of, other than you know, things that, that you guys are doing naturally to work, mm-hmm. you know, the muscle. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, as you know, that you can, you can do your core and all that, but it's the fascia that's stretched out. And so you can strengthen your muscles, but, you know, is the fascia going to tighten? And like I said, this is very interesting because the MRIs do show that you get that 11% reduction. Unfortunately, it's not a 30% or a 40% reduction. It's only 11%. Um, but that doesn't mean that you can't do the procedure again at a later time. And combine it with some of the other things that you're talking about. So the exactly. the exercise and the nutrition and all of that to amplify exactly. them. 
Let's talk a little bit about skincare because I pulled the community, uh, the better community, and that was probably the biggest thing that everybody wanted to know about. So, and then I, I also want to move into the other topic, uh, which I know you do a lot of, which is uh, breast dog. So we're going to talk about breast mm-hmm. augmentation as well. So talking, if we talk about skin, walk me through. So for example, when I look at myself, when I look at pictures of myself when I was 20 and I look mm-hmm. at pictures of myself now, there's you look a, the same. <laughs> Thank you. I will pay you for that later. I appreciate that. <laughs> but there is like, there is a lot there, like there's just a little less glow, a little less plumping. You know, my cheeks are not as, you know, full as they, as they once were. What are some of the, I know that there's extreme, like there's external factors like sun exposure that can change the experience of the skin, but can you walk us through, you know, internal changes that may happen, external changes in terms of how and why our skin uh, looks older over time. Yeah. So all the levels of our face, all the soft tissues, even the, the bone actually do change as we get older. Mm-hmm. Um, when you start off with the surface of the skin, you know, one of the big things that happens is that our, our skin naturally exfoliates. And when we're younger, it exfoliates every six to eight weeks, meaning that you get a new skin cell that's developed in the dermis, the deeper layer skin. And it does take about six to eight weeks for that skin cell to go all the way up to the surface and then eventually slough off. As we get older, that exfoliation process slows down and it starts taking much longer. And so we get this buildup of dead skin cells on the surface that can cause our skin to look drier. Uh, It can feel rougher and look even rougher in texture. So exfoliating the skin can really help because it's very interesting. If If you actively exfoliate the skin, either mechanically or chemically using different methods, then it sends a cellular signal to the deeper skin cells to cause that exfoli- the natural exfoliation process to start revving up, okay? So, so that slowdown in the natural exfoliation process is one of the reasons why our skin ages as we get older. Second thing is that we know that the collagen, which composes a vast majority of the building blocks of the skin, does thin as we get older, okay? Mm-hmm. And that's why you see, especially older women and older men, where their skin is so thin that they can get these tears in the skin, you know, because that collagen has become depleted. Uh, so in the skin, you know, you are looking at that slowdown of exfoliation, of natural exfoliation and turnover mm-hmm. and the thinning of the collagen. Uh, below the skin is the fat. And we do know that the fat thins as we get older. And you mentioned, yeah, I used to feel like my cheeks were a little bit plumper. As I've gotten older, they've gotten thinner. I've noticed that with myself too. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's a loss of volume, a soft tissue volume of that fat. And on top of that, there are actual MRI studies and, and CT studies showing that the bone the bone even actually changes shape and bone even thins as well. Right. It's much, it's worse in people who are edentulous, you know? So there's some people who, um, you know, they've, they have, they don't take good care of their teeth. If you don't have teeth that they actually help stabilize your maxilla, which is the uh, upper, you know, your upper jaw basically, mm-hmm. and even and the lower as well. And you get bone, uh, the bone actually then shrinks down if you don't actually have teeth. So another reason to really take good care of your teeth when you're young, because you want them when you're older. So it's a combination of factors that combine to create all of these changes. And it's it's almost unfair because you you sort of lose fat in your face, but then you have this propensity to increase your adiposity, you know, your fat elsewhere, right? It's just, it's not fair. There is a, there is a quote, I want to say it was, uh, Catherine Deneuve, she said, you know, at one point you have to choose between your fanny and your face, which I thought is, you know, maybe under your care, that might not be the case, but um, (laughs) uh, I thought that was really fun. So when we, when we talk about best practices for skin, so, you know, where we can promote healthy aging, 
is there a minimum viable product where you think, okay, so before, and even before we get to Botox and fillers, which I, I definitely want to talk about, but mm-hmm. in terms of a skincare routine, are you an advocate for sunscreen? I know some people say like, stay away yeah. from sunscreen. Some others are, are fanatical. What is, what is the minimum things that we should be doing every day? So yes, I'm definitely a fan of sunscreen. If you've seen people who've had skin cancers on their face, like I have, you know that how important that is. Okay. Um, so anyways, you know, what I have something is called the two minutes, five years younger skincare routine. So, you know, it, it really is drilling it down good to marketing. the abs- I like that. <laughs> it's That's the absolute <laughs> simplest thing that everybody needs to do um, to take good care of their skin. And so what it is, is every morning you want to cleanse your skin and choose a cleanser appropriate for your skin type. So if you've got let's say oily skin, look for more of a foaming type of cleanser Mm because that can help get rid of a little of that oil. Uh, If you've got more uh, drier or sensitive skin, then look for something more like a milky type cleanser that's going to keep some of that hydration. So you cleanse your skin in the morning. Then after that, you want to apply an antioxidant serum. The best antioxidants and most the easiest ones to find are vitamin C. Mm -hmm. Okay. And ideally, if you can get a vitamin C and vitamin E combination, that's going to be even better. We have one in my um, off, we have one on my online store in my office called um, CE Antacid Serum. There are actually studies that show that if you combine vitamin C and vitamin E, their antioxidant power basically is synergistically increased. For some reason, you you put them separately, they do what they do separately. You put them together, and it's much better than them separate. So vitamin C and E. Uh, SkinCeuticals has one called CE Ferulic that's super super popular. And, mm-hmm. and so for me, I haven't copied them, but we've got one called the CE Antacid Serum. So you apply a good antioxidant serum, and then you want to apply a sunblock or sunscreen, okay? That's all you have to do technically in the morning. If you want to do the bare minimum, cleanse, antioxidant serum, sunscreen. Mm-hmm. At night, definitely you got to cleanse your skin. Super, super important, okay? Because you've had the day's worth of pollutants and oil and, and dirt build up on your skin and makeup, okay, mm-hmm. if you wear makeup got to get rid of it. Let your skin breathe at night. Then you want to apply an anti-aging cream. And the one that I usually recommend to start out with is a retinol. Okay. Retinoids are uh, derivatives of vitamin A and and tretinoin, which is otherwise known as retin-A, is the most studied um, anti-aging cream that we know of. And it's definitely proven to reverse fine lines, to uh, thicken the, the collagen of the skin, to exfoliate the skin, and it can even reverse early pre-skin cancers, okay? So I had to pick one type of cream. It would be tretinoin or retin-A. But the problem with tretinoin, retin-A, is it's really hard for some people to tolerate, and people can get pretty severe dermatitis. Um, is, it it, is it drying? Yeah. yeah, okay. It can dry your skin out big time. So if, if you have sensitive skin, you know, then try a retinol. And most big skincare lines have a retinol-based cream uh, available. You know, we have mine, it's our top seller called the, our retinol moisturizer, Yoon Beauty. But that's the, the one anti-aging cream that I would recommend whatever age you are to definitely use. And I have to shout out your product because you gave me a full-size product. I can't remember where we were. I want to say we were maybe... Probably one of our meetings, yeah. Yeah, one of our meetings somewhere. And it was my fate. I used the whole... like I. It's very <laughs> rare for me to get through a whole bottle of something. Not greasy. I loved it. So we'll put... Uh, oh, I'll you. definitely uh, link out the products that you've talked about, your vitamin C serum and your retinol in the show notes for sure. No, thank you. Yeah. But that's it. So, I mean, really, if... That's all you technically have to do. And then, well, the other thing is, is every you know, two to three times a week, if you've got normal skin, exfoliate your skin. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you've got sensitive skin, then maybe once a week. 
a lot of ways to exfoliate. You can use like a Clarisonic type of a brush to exfoliate your skin. Um, we have a simple scrub that we recommend. You can do that. Um, you can and do these it. These are at like home mechanical scrubs. These yeah, are so what mechanical, you call mechanical. Yeah, like kind yeah. of like a sugary type of scrub. Yeah. Uh, some people will exfoliate their skin by doing very light at home, like fruit peels, that type mm -hmm. of thing. But just try to exfoliate your skin. Because like I said earlier, if you exfoliate your skin, you get your skin then turning over more quickly. So if all you do is that two minutes, cleanse, antioxidant serum, sunscreen in the morning. Mm -hmm. At night, you cleanse, you apply an anti-aging cream, ideally a retinol. Uh, and then two to three times a week, exfoliate your skin. If that's all you do, you're way ahead of most people. Can you okay. put the vitamin C in the evening as well? Or would you separate um, the C and the retinol? There's no reason to because it's a protectant. So an anti, it's, it's a vitamin C is an antioxidant mainly is what it does. Mm -hmm. And so it's going to protect your skin during the day from free radical damage. At night, you're sleeping. You know, there's nothing really to protect your skin from. Right. So could you do it? Yes. Would it be beneficial? I mean, yeah, it would be, but they're usually not that cheap. And if you want to save your money and the time and limit, you know, all the steps to do, then that's not something that I would recommend that you need. Right. Okay. So let's kind of move into the Botox, the fillers. I guess there's an overarching question. How do you avoid, you know, if I, it's funny because some, you know, you walk down the street now and you're like, oh man, this, maybe this person's gone <laughs> a little bit beyond the natural contours or what their skin is like. How do you avoid that unnatural look that can be associated with cosmetic surgery. And I know that you, I mean, you've been in Beverly Hills, you, you've been in the Mecca in terms of, of plastic surgery. So what are, what are some of your best practices for that? So it's kind of interesting, Stephanie. Um, in 2004, uh, I, I was a co-author of a paper called the three-dimensional, the 3D volumetric facelift. Mm -hmm. And it was one of the first papers that really described a 3D rejuvenation of the face. It was in the past, facelifts are all two-dimensional. You're basically lifting. Uh, and the doctor I trained with out in Beverly Hills, a guy named Dr. Richard Elmo, was one of the first people to really get into this three-dimensional rejuvenation. Mm -hmm. And so we would inject fat into the cheeks and into the lips and other parts of the face in addition to lifting. And at the time, uh, and I wrote about that in Playing God, I mean, it was revolutionary and it blew my mind because I never looked at aging that way. We were always taught it in a two-dimensional fashion. Mm -hmm. So what, has, what was a good idea has now, like anything... You know, doctors have taken it to the extreme. And so you've got these people with pillow faces where their cheeks are so excessively puffed up, the face doesn't move. And there's mm -hmm. this idea, unfortunately, especially out West, where more is better. And that's just not the case. And so, really, there isn't any, um, I guess, simple way, a simpler or, or more direct way to put it than just do the least amount necessary to, be, to make yourself happy. Uh, and that's really all it comes down to is that we have this tendency to think more is better. And that's just not the case with plastic surgery, especially. So and we, I think, yeah, sorry. And I, I think, I think about people like Demi Moore, who, mm -hmm. you know, you look at her and you're like, God, she just looks, you can't tell, you know, there's, mm -hmm. there's been something, but you're like, I don't know what it is. Like she still looks incredible. And then you kind of contrast that with, you know, maybe other celebrities and you're like, man, that's just, the skin is not meant to do that. And there are people out there who've had really good work that only people get, that can tell are plastic surgeons. So mm -hmm. for example, and I have no proof that they, these celebrities have had anything done, but mm -hmm. I'll say Helen Mirren, people say, oh, she looks so great for her age and this and that. I would bet money she's had a facelift. Okay. Right. But it's been so well done. You can't really tell because she just, you just look at it and go, oh, well, she looks really good. Right. Um, I believe that the vast majority of celebrities, Hollywood celebrities have had nose jobs, you know, mm -hmm. and when you really look at it, I think 
Julia Roberts had her nose done. Mm -hmm. Jennifer Aniston had her nose done. Mm -hmm. uh, Ryan Seacrest. There's so many celebrities, but they look good. And you wouldn't think about it. But as a plastic surgeon, I've done enough of them that I can spot these little telltale things. Right. They'll tell me if they've had work done. And, and that's the whole thing is it's, you still want to look like yourself and do the absolute least amount necessary to get you where you want to get to. And I love the idea of plastic surgery being a means to empower someone to feel and look their best, right? So I know you have like an expert eye, so you can say, oh, this person's done it or that person's done it. And there's no shame associated with that. I just think that for me, like, you know, and I have, you know, maybe a more comprehensive understanding of the musculoskeletal system, but if I see someone smile and you know, the frontalis muscle doesn't like, we don't see any lifting yeah. of the eyebrows yeah. and yeah. it just looks like an ice rink, you know, it's just shiny. Uh, you know, for me, that's like a dead giveaway and maybe even just a poor, that's a poor application of Botox. And if you're trying to, you know, maybe this is a question for you to answer, you know, what are best practices with Botox? You know, we know that it's, you know, typically used for reducing lines in the, in the, you know, in the forehead area. It has, yeah. it has a lot of other applications. Like I've yeah. had patients tell me they've used it for migraines and torticollis and stuff like that. But what are some of the best practices for Botox? Is there, should you use it as a, you know, should you use it as a preventative measure? Like before you see the wrinkles, is that something you should think about? Or is there a time that it's too late to use it? Like, tell me what your thoughts are on that. So I'm not a big fan of preventative Botox, um, a number of reasons. Number one, it's still a medical procedure. And a lot of people who are having this done are so young. And I mean, spend your money on other stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, don't spend it on Botox. Um, there, there are uh, reports of people who develop antibodies to Botox. And so there's a couple of reasons why, you know, if, if you don't care that you're having a medical procedure done, that's unnecessary. Well, think about that. Maybe you may be screwing yourself in the future, because if you do it too much when you're young, it might not work when you're older. Right. Um, the other thing with Botox that I think is really important for people to realize is that there are parts of the face that you can inject with Botox that people really won't be able to tell and other parts that you can really see it. Yes. So yes. the three areas that are most commonly injected are the glabella, which is the 11 sign in the, um, uh, between the eyebrows, the procerus, yep. the, yep, the procerus, the corrugator muscles. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there's the crow's feet wrinkles out to the side. And then mm -hmm. there's the forehead. Those are the three most common. When you do the crow's feet and when you do the glabella or the frown lines, it's rare that people will get a bad outcome out of it. It's really when you do the forehead that you've got to be very careful. And if a doctor is performing it or a non-doctor medical provider, and they don't really know how your eyebrows will change if you have it injected there, then you can really cause a lot of issues. So when I first started injecting it, honestly, I didn't really know a whole lot of us what I was doing. I, I watched the courses. I saw a few people do it, and I just did it how they did. But the problem is, is you get everybody's face is very, very different, and everybody's mm -hmm. eyebrows are different. So for you, Stephanie, you've got a nice arch to your eyebrow. And if somebody were to do Botox on you, the same as a person who's got a very horizontal eyebrow, you're going to get two very, very different appearances. So if I were to inject you to, like I would somebody with a horizontal brow, you would get the Cru Cruella DeVille type eyebrows. Okay? So that would I mean, mean that my eyebrows would fall? 
No, the, the, the arches, the arch of your eyebrow would actually excessively arch high. Oh, it would go up high. Oh, yes. okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, and then the, um, the middle of it, the, the medial portion of it would drop and you would look at this oh, kind of witchy, like triangles, angry. Like little yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So now it. if you guys see Stephanie and you see that appearance and you know, she's had bad <laughs> Botox. <laughs> I'll be going to your office like, fix me, please undo but, this. <laughs> but the same person with, let's say a very horizontal eyebrow can get a nice arch their brow that they otherwise may Maybe right. wouldn't have had. So right. it really has to be very individually done. And so that's why you really want to, if you have something like this done, make sure it's under the hands of somebody who does a lot of this, who can explain to you, okay, this is how I'm going to inject your forehead to get this type of a result. That's amazing. And it's always, it's almost, um, I know this is, I don't know if this is the right, I'm just going to tell you anyway, sometimes I'll watch like award shows and I'll be like, bad Botox, the front, like I can't see, you know, because if you see someone smile, like I was saying, you should see like nasal, you should see like the nasal labial folds, like deepen a little bit. You should see the eyes crinkle a little bit and lift. And if you don't see those things where you don't see a lot of, yeah, where you don't see a lot of movement here. And thank you for bringing that up about the, um, areas in the face where you can do Botox. Like I was always taught, you know, the, the it's safest to do it up here. And of course there's mm-hmm. nuances like you just described, but that's because this area is bilaterally innervated, right? So the facial nerve, there's bilateral innervation, but if you kind of do it in the lower half of the face, isn't it da- more dangerous there because it's only contralaterally? It's, well, it's not so much danger as it is it's okay if we don't move a lot of the muscles in our upper face, but if you don't move the muscles in your lower face, you start to drool, you've right. got crooked smile, like things look strange, you know? Right. So it's not that unusual not to move your eyebrows a whole lot, but if you inject around the mouth uh, and we do a little bit, I do inject a little bit around the mouth. So people who've got kind of the grumpy, that permafrown, yeah, uh, we, yeah. <laughs> we can inject a tiniest amount of Botox in the depressor anguli oris muscle. So it's a muscle right. that basically pulls your corners of your mouth down. Mm-hmm. If you inject the tiniest amount of Botox into that, some people have a, a hyperactive muscle there and it causes them to permanently frown. Right. You can reverse that frown. Very, very simple way to do that. And I have patients who get literally they get food stuck in the creases in the corners of the mouth oh, wow. Wow. and you inject a little Botox there and it can make a big difference for some of them. And this is why, for the listener, this is why this, the person who is injecting the Botox, you need to have an exquisite understanding of the anatomy. Yeah. Yes, there's the art, but the, you have to understand the anatomy. So I would have, I mean, and of course, I'm not a surgeon, so I would never know that, but I would be so, this is why these Botox parties and these kinds of things are so dangerous. Like you need to be going to somebody who is who knows how a little bit of Botox can, you know, make such a big difference. And even more important is filler because Botox, worst thing that happens, you know, is that you get a crooked smile or a droopy Mm -hmm. eyelid or something like that. Now there are some reports, I should just say this, because some of your audience may may be hearing this, of some people who do get Botox and they feel like they have systemic symptoms from it. Mm -hmm. I don't know a whole lot about it. I haven't heard much of that from my patients, but I do know that's out there. Mm -hmm. Um, But much more important than the potential risks, you know, the physical risks of Botox is filler. And that's where you really have to be careful because if filler is improperly injected, then people have gotten scarring from it. They have lost parts of their face and they've even gone blind from filler. Uh, So that's where you really, really have to be cautious. Mm -hmm. You know, if you can be happy and not have filler done, don't do it. You know, if you're Mm going to do it, make sure it's done in a very safe fashion. It's a hyaluronic acid-based filler and that the doctor ideally will use a cannula, which also makes it safer. 
All right, let's move into uh, breast augmentation. Uh, I want to also make sure that we're respectful of your time, but there's a lot of, uh, when we talk about breast dog, this is a regular part of your practice and there's so much information. And I, I we have to link to your website in the show notes because there, you have such... Your website is such a great resource of information, but there's Thank a you. lot of, you know, this week the FDA came out with, you know, different uh, recommendations for bo- like putting boxed warnings on implants. Before we get into that, can we just have a high level view or a summary? Silicon versus saline. There's round versus teardrop. There's yeah. textured versus. Can we maybe talk about some of the different types of implants, the risks associated with them, and the ones that you prefer? So there are saline and silicone, and that's what's on the inside of the implants. Um, They all have a silicone rubber shell to them. So all of them have some type of silicone. Um, The shells can either be a smooth shell or a textured, which is like a sandpapery surface. The first thing you want to consider with breast implants, and, and, you know, there's all these things, you know, as far as you go above under the muscle, where do you put your scars? But what really is important that I think we want to discuss, you know, with our limited time um, are two huge things going on in the field of breast augmentation. The first thing is ALCL. Yeah. Uh, breast implant associated ALCL, it's basically a type of lymphoma that has been associated with textured breast implants. So that traditionally the quote unquote gummy bear implants have this textured or sandpapery surface that's made to allow the implant to stick in place. That's important. That has been important in patients, let's say, who've had breast cancer, they undergo mastectomy, they don't have breast tissue left over. So the implant is made to stick in place so that it doesn't, let's say, droop prematurely. Mm -hmm. The problem that we're finding is that those implants are now associated with a very, very rare type of cancer. In the United States, uh, you know, as of today, there are approximately 550 confirmed cases of ALCL, and a handful of people have actually died from it. Mm -hmm. The important takeaway from this uh, and, and the FDA and Allergan, one of the breast implant companies, actually recalled a certain type of breast implant that's textured because they had the highest risk. Uh, the important thing to take away from this is that there are no smooth surface implants that we know of um, that have caused or have been related to this ALCL on their own. Every single smooth implant case where a patient has developed ALCL, that patient's also had a history of a textured implant. Okay. So if you have smooth implants, which is a bit, they're the vast majority of women, then you shouldn't hopefully worry about it. At least as of now, we have no data to show not even a single confirmed case. Right. If you have a textured implant, be aware, be aware of this. If you notice any swelling in your breast, that's unusual, especially if it's a couple of years after surgery. If you notice a lump in your breast, you really want to get it checked out. Okay. And if you are considering breast implants now, there are still textured implants that are on the market that doctors are still using. Mm-hmm. I do not use them in my patients anymore. You know, I, if somebody asks me for it, I say, no, I'm, I'm not going to put something in my patient that could potentially cause cancer several years down the line. It makes no sense to me. Right. So that's one thing. The second issue is breast implant illness. And this is a constellation of symptoms ranging from brain fog to, to muscle aches, to hair loss, to rashes that thousands of women across the country are attributing to their breast implants. Right. Uh, studies show that when women develop these symptoms, about 50 to 70% of them will, their symptoms will significantly improve or completely go away when their breast implants are removed. Uh, and that's something that we are still learning more about. Literally five years ago, if you were to ask the majority of plastic surgeons if breast implant illness is real or is it a psychiatric condition, probably 98% of them or more would say it's a psychiatric condition. It's the Mm -hmm. women believing this and they're wrong. 
Right. The tide is changing. I believe breast implant illness is real. This is not a psychiatric issue. This is a real medical phenomenon that we really need to get to the bottom of. And I commend the societies and plastic surgeons now that are really now saying, yeah, there's a lot of big name plastic surgeons who are saying that this is a real thing and let's study this more. We've got to get to the bottom of this. So if somebody does have texture, if someone is listening and they're like, man, I have the teardrop uh, or I have the textured implant, should they, you know, should they be concerned? Should they go back to the, do they need to get them switched out? What is the follow-up for p- patients who already have these prosthetics? So the FDA is not recommending that you switch them out at this time. But what I would recommend is that find is if you have breast implants, find out what you have. Um, every state is different in their requirements. In, in Michigan, where I practice, uh, doctors are required to keep records for seven years. Mm-hmm. After seven years, a lot of doctors toss them out. And if mm-hmm. you don't know what type of implant you have, um, that could be a problem. So if you have breast implants and you're not sure what kind they are, find out what they are. If they are a textured implant, then talk with your physician uh, you know, and talk with you know, your loved ones about whether you would feel more comfortable switching them out. Um, I think really at this point, it's an individual decision. Uh, the FDA is not recommending that this time, but once again, it is an individual decision to make. Okay. I know that you have a hard stop. So I, uh, there's a whole bunch of other questions that I wanted to ask you today, but I'm going to, this is just an invitation because you're going to just going to have to come back on uh, the podcast. Thank you. I wanted to thank you for your time today. And, you know, in general, I think just lifting up your profession. I think that there's so many just like chiropractic, just like many professions, there can be, you know, you have one bad or two bad eggs and the whole profession is, is stained by it. And I think that whenever, whenever I hear about a new beauty fad or anything, I always want to know what you think about it first. So <laughs> I, before I make an opinion, I wait to see how you weigh in. So, um, and I think your Thank book you. is also an open and honest recount of what it, what it means to become a real doctor. So. Thank you, Stephanie. You're welcome. So if people want to find out more about you or your book, where can, uh, where can I point them on the interwebs? So yeah, my website is dryoon.com and uh, we've got uh, free resources there. I also have a free ebook, What to Eat to Look Younger and 10 Things Every Plastic Surgery Patient Must Know. So share a lot of stuff there. Um, and then we're all on social media. You can find me anywhere, actually. We're, we're everywhere. Awesome. <laughs> but awesome. the website's probably the easiest place to start, dryoon.com. Awesome. Awesome. All right. I will wrap it up here. Thank you so much, Doc. And it's always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Stephanie. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can find all this information at our website, bettershow.co. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-S-H-O-W dot C-O. Maybe the simplest way to keep in touch with me is to sign up for my email. When you go to bettershow.co, there'll be a little pop-up and I send a weekly email on all things mindset, nutrition, fitness, uh, longevity, aging, things that are capturing my attention that week in a newsletter that we call Brain Candy. You can find me on social, on Twitter, it's Dr. underscore Stephanie. On Instagram, I am Dr. Stephanie Estima. That's S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E. E-S-T-I-M-A. And finally, a legal and medical disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only and the advice, discussions, and recommendations that we discuss on this podcast do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare professional's advice or care. There is no doctor-patient relationship that has been established in the consumption of this podcast. And the use and implementation of the information contained here are at the sole discretion of the listener. 
The content in this podcast is not intended to be used as a substitute for any professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment.